let's say you acquire one user on a daily basis, but if you don't retain one user on a daily basis, then, then you're basically not growing at all because for every customer you get, you will lose one, of course. So retention is basically, you can say, this foundation that we want to build on top of. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. My name is Matt Rouse, and today my guest is Nikki Fritz. Nikki helped start two digital companies and scale them to a team of more than 20. Both companies are still growing, and he still holds shares in both. He now started Nikki, which is N-I-C-Q-I, to help startups with his unique blend of user psychology, quantitative and qualitative modeling, acquisition, virality, Retention, engagement, and monetization strategies. Nikki, how are you? Sorry, I butchered your name there, but <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, Matt. I'm I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you so much for uh, for giving me the opportunity. Hey, it's great. And I know we talked a little bit back and forth about kind of what we were going to talk about today, and then in the end, we just kind of like mashed it all together. So the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about, I was reading your LinkedIn profile, and you had a quote on there. It said. To help companies crack their growth model so they can unleash more of their full potential. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, of course. And, uh, and thank you for the, for the introduction. I know there's a lot of buzzwords in there. But basically what I mean with that is that both for, I guess, both for personal development, but also for companies, I, never, I don't believe we will ever be on the edge of reaching our potential in regards to our growth, either it's personal growth or business growth. And what I mean by, you can say, cracking the growth model or really finding, dissecting the growth opportunities that the companies have in front of them, actually. So what we do is that we typically kind of start with uh, dissecting what is the current way that the product or the company grows. So we need to understand, you can say, the basics first. And then we try to see, okay, so this is how you grow. What can we do to optimize it? Or do we actually have to build something entirely different? It, it doesn't have to be a pivot necessarily that you have to create an entirely new service or an entirely new product or anything like that. It's more kind of like, does your product or does your business model actually fit together? Is that the, you can say business model market fit, but also does it suit you can say uh, the channels that you are actually pursuing at the moment, if we look for like, you can say acquisition perspective as well. So basically we're trying to kind of see if there's product market fit, if the product fits with the channels that we have, if uh, the product fits with the, the business model as well, does it actually make sense? You can say on, this is how much it costs us to acquire a customer. Does it correlate with our average revenue per user. So basically trying to see if all these fits combined makes the business great or if we should do anything else to kind of help them out. Right. And you know, that's that's a really good kind of segue there to talk about. And this is something, and and I know the wording is slightly different, but in a lot of companies, we call it customer lifetime value, right? And that's how much is the customer going to pay you over the average length of time that a customer is going to be with you. And then the cost of acquisition, which is how much does it cost you to get a customer? And those are two of probably the most important numbers for almost any business. And I can tell you from having meetings with, you know, literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of business people that a majority of small business owners don't know those numbers. No, I completely agree. And the idea is if you are basing your business model 
on the single first transaction, you may be missing out on a huge amount of customers that you could bring on because you could spend more to acquire a customer if it's based on lifetime value versus the first sale. And that's something that a lot of small business owners, I think, don't look at. A good example of that in the retail space that people have seen before is the lost leader kind of product, you know, where you go in and they're like, we got a TV for 29 bucks, you know, only 10 available kind of thing. But you go in, you buy that, but then they're hoping that it's going to bring a whole bunch of people into the store or that you're going to buy things over a long period of time. So then the lifetime value of the customer gets larger. But also, you know, the other thing in there that I wanted to ask you about that you had mentioned is kind of the model of the company. Now, are you talking about more of like a two-sided marketplace, like an Uber, kind of Airbnb, or that kind of model? Or is it different kind of models for different kinds of startups? It's different kind of models for different kind of startups. It can be any type of digital, you can say a digital business model, really. You don't necessarily need to have a platform in order to kind of work with, uh, you can say, the methodology that we are using. It can be a services business as well or product business, but we typically work with SaaS companies, subscription e-commerce companies, marketplaces, social platforms, etc. But really kind of like the fundamental mindset of how we work with growth can really be applied to anything. Right. So you started two companies. Actually, I think you're I think on one of the places when I was looking you up, it said two, but on your LinkedIn, it now says three. So is that like, did you you added another company on since the, the original two? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm always uh, updating my stuff, of course, and I try to keep it updated all, everywhere. But basically, there's been multiple different companies as I started my first business when I was only 16. But kind of like real SaaS companies. Yeah, one of them, IdeaNode, and the other one is patmanual.com, which has really been, you can see, it's a the businesses that have taken off to such extent that I deem it worthy of, let's say, my legacy. <laughs> so one of those businesses, why don't you just, just pick one, the, whichever one you like, the idea of behind the best. And can you let us know kind of how you were able to work out the growth strategy, like what that process was in the beginning when you didn't know what you know now? Yeah, there, of course, there's a lot of things. But one of the one of the businesses that I've been a part of starting is a business called patentrenewal.com. And it's basically patent renewal management as a service. So if you own a patent, you have to renew it every year or depending on which jurisdiction in the United States, it's every three and a half year. Anyway, so what we did with that business, what when we started up, we actually didn't know that we wanted to go into the patent renewal space. We just knew that we wanted to work with intellectual property rights. And we have no background in intellectual property rights or anything in, in relation to, to legal stuff, actually. But we wanted to work in this area because we saw that the huge amount of cost that it actually cost an inventor to, you can say, protect their ideas. And what we wanted was that we wanted to, you can say, disrupt this market and making, making you can say, protection available to even the small inventors because we believe that ideas can change the world. Anyway, so we, we looked into the intellectual property space and we found out that in the patent renewal, you could say space, there wasn't a great entry barrier. We could build a product in only six months that would automate the patent renewal process in 65 of all jurisdictions in the world. And we also saw the opportunity in regards to, you can say, positioning ourselves in the space um, in regards to looking at the competitive landscape. And what we actually 
did first was that we we tried to talk with a lot of people within the intellectual property space and kind of listened in what were they needing. We built the product together with beta customers, et cetera. And we had both, you can say, uh, traditional companies like corporates, and we also had law firms. And there was quite a distinction between those two because typically the corporates would go to the law firms to get this service. But we basically tried to serve both at first to kind of find our, you can say, our fit in the market with the product that we had in mind. And what we did then was that we tried to even, you can say, niche even further and position ourselves from a different angle than everybody else. And we tried to pursue, you can say, the law firms. So building a product that was servicing the law firms better than any other product on the market. And there wasn't really any uh, alternative to our product because almost all our competitors were focusing on, you can say, the broader market. And we were kind of niching in or focusing on, on this particular audience here. So that was the way that we tried to distinguish ourselves by targeting IP law firms, intellectual property law firms, and just building a product for them. But what we also saw is that these people, they were able to, you can say, perform patent renewals themselves. And they were really experts on this. And they really didn't trust a bunch of 20 plus year olds who didn't have any experience within this field, trusting them with the assets of their customers which is a patents and, and intellectual property rights, which is in the billions, of course. And we kind of understood that. And we had a very hard time, you can say, penetrating that market. And just until recently, actually, we started opening up for the corporates. And now we suddenly see, you can say, real traction. Let me ask you this. Do you think that that traction came because you had done it for a while and you had had some customers? So you can say, look, we have some testimonials. We can show that we are you know, knowledgeable and that, that we can do the process. Is that kind of how that went? So what we did was that we targeted IP law firms, so intellectual property law firms. So basically the ones that the corporates would go to before we came on the market. And because we had those brands and we were already trusted by IP law firms worldwide, we had a way easier time, you can say, going into the corporates and saying, hey, we already work with potentially their own uh, service provider at the moment. Why don't you work with us? So we were, we weren't, you can say, uh, cannibalizing IP law firms, customer base, but we are trying to go for corporates that didn't work with IP law firms at first, of course. It was a very hard balance actually to kind of see. So we have our partners and we have their customers and we don't want to, uh, you can say, compete with our partners. Of course, it's, it's a hard balance and you have to kind of focus on specific markets or areas where your partners are not operating. At least that was what we did in the beginning. Otherwise, we would have no partners wanting to work with us, if it makes sense. Uh, you know, we see that in, in the marketing space. When we do local marketing, we'll only take a couple clients who are in the same field, you know, because there's everything in the world of, of marketing at this point is pretty much an auction. Right. It's, you know, who gets the first spot of Google or who gets the Facebook ad placement or whatever it is. Right. All of those are dependent on who spends more money. And so if you have two clients in the same space in the same geographical location, you're just upping the amount that you have to pay for both of them to be in the same in the same location. This is an interesting question. So you guys didn't know anything about patent law, basically, or if the product was going to work. You just had the idea that you knew it was expensive for people to do this thing. And there was probably a cheaper, better way to do it. How did you kind of 
did you work out the market fit? Like, was it a process that you went through? Like you did some research on who's doing it and then you whiteboard it or something like that. Like, how does that process look when you're first starting out? I mean, you don't have to give me your whole process, but I think product market fit is super important. So. No, I completely agree. I mean, how we started this, this company at first was that we knew that we wanted to go into the intellectual property space. And what we basically did was that we went on LinkedIn and we typed in, I don't know, patent lawyer, patent agent, IP law firms, et cetera. And then we basically asked if they would uh, like to chat with us because we had some ideas that we would like to kind of explore. And a lot of the people that we, we wrote to, they actually wanted to provide us with, I don't know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes meetings, and some even ate lunch with us. And basically just trying to learn everything that we could about this space. So that was how we begun. And then what, of course, we kind of figured out was that we talked with some people and we asked them, what are some of the problems that you are facing at the moment? How would you solve it? And we tried to, you can say our CTO at that time, our, our technical officer, he basically tried to figure out, okay, of all the problems in the, in the, in the space, which of these problems can we potentially solve fast and which ones can we automate to a degree where it becomes fun, you can say, to operate this business as well. Right. And basically he looked at, at all of these things we were looking at and a lot of different things within the intellectual property space, but then looked at renewals. And he was basically like, guys, in six months, I even believe he said in, in like three months, four months or something like that, I can automate all of this. And of, of course, what we figured out when we started was that there were not just 65 jurisdictions in the world, but 233 jurisdictions. And some of them are wow. in the Holy Grail patent office, which is in the Vatican, uh, Macau, Samoa, all these very exotic jurisdictions that we would never basically automate. But we could automate a lot of them in, in a in a fast amount of time. And that was kind of where we started. And to back to your question in regards to, you can say product market fit, what we saw was that the people that we interviewed first were our target market, basically. So that was patent agents, patent law firms, uh, people working in corporates with this stuff. And we were asking, what kind of questions do you have? And then we basically tried to, you can say, co-develop or collaborate around the development of the platform together with them. And of course, we assembled an advisory board with a former patent director, former uh, legal counsel who had the responsibility for tens of thousands of patents and other dom domain experts, basically. And then we built, you can say, a prototype, tried to, to take more meetings with who we had defined at our, as our target audience, showed it to them, got more feedback and kind of ran into this iterative process. We, of course, provided, you can say, huge discounts at first. Still, uh, still um, we priced it at, in, in USD, it would probably be something like $100 per renewal was what we priced it for at the beginning towards our beta clients. And we wanted to, to sell renewals at approximately 200 USD when we were kind of launching the, the final product. But what we actually saw as well is that the price in the market was very much lower. But basically trying to kind of work together with partners to come up with the best possible solution to their problem. So that's super interesting. And I know... I have like questions that we haven't even talked about yet, <laughs> but why don't you tell me a little bit more about the advisory board? And so I guess my questions about advisory boards would be number one, why or how did you even get the idea to have an advisory board? And number two, 
what is it that encourages people to be on your advisory board? Is there a financial stake or a discount or some other kind of incentive? So the reason for why we assembled an advisory board at Patent Renewal was because we had one at the former company IdeaNode. And the reason for why we actually assembled an advisory board back then, one thing was, of course, that we wanted more experienced people. But the other thing was actually that our target audience in IdeaNode was leaders or directors, CXOs in, in, in enterprises and not enterprises, but large companies, medium-sized businesses as well. And what we tried to do was that we tried to find leaders or thought leaders within that space. And then we basically tried to, to have them refer us to potential clients. So we basically used the advisory board as kind of like an acquisition channel as well in the beginning. I wouldn't do that because that's the wrong incentive. And how you can say what we paid them off with was being part of a cool startup. We didn't give them any, anything monetary. We didn't give them gift or anything like that or shares in the company. We, of course, they got like a Christmas present and we put them on our website. They could write it on their LinkedIn as well. In IdeaNode, we got a ton of press. We won a lot of prizes. And, and so I'm from Denmark. In, in Danish measurements, IdeaNode was quite successful from the PR side. That was also why people uh, wanted to get on our advisory board. Now, I wanted to, want to say as well that likes don't pay the bills. PR is not the holy grail at all. But that's something we learned all, out about later. Right. And, you know, I think PR is is something that can really influence the growth of your business. But you have to be doing something else to influence it with. Like you can't just do PR. If you just do PR, you're going to have you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, you see some some really big businesses out there like like 1-800-JUNK is a perfect example. And they grew that business to billions and billions of dollars. And their strategy was they had an, an, an aggressive organic search and and marketing and sales team and like on the ground, boots on the ground strategy. But everything else was PR. But the PR wouldn't have worked if they didn't have the people on the ground or the organic thing so that people could type it in and find it, you know, after they heard about it. Yeah. One thing here is, do you remember HomeJoy? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you know the story of, about HomeJoy, but but basically they relied on a ton of PR in the beginning. And it was, I think, Paul Graham from Y Combinator. He He's quoted somewhere that he had invested into the, the highest valued company that he had ever invested into was HomeJoy. And what happened was that two years later, they shut down and they, they got a ton of PR in the beginning, but they didn't have a retention model that could actually support the amount of growth. So I think that's that's one thing to have in mind. So one PR is very good at, you can say, acquiring users and getting top of funnel traffic. But retention is the foundation for all growth. And, and I can't I can't say that enough. Yeah. Retention and, and follow up are things that people talk about a lot in the kind of startup world and in the SaaS marketing world. But people don't kind of pay enough attention to it in like the kind of physical services model businesses, especially services businesses or uh, and also kind of on the e-commerce model, too. I see that a lot. They're like, we're going to buy customers right with ads over and over and over and over and over. And then there's almost no follow up or retention model beyond like a newsletter, you know. And I think there's there's huge amounts of growth that can be created through follow up and, uh, you know, selling more things to the customers you already have and things like that. So let me ask you this. 
what are some of the strategies since we were just talking about follow up? What are some of the strategies from the kind of SaaS startup world that you think small businesses or service businesses could be using for their own marketing? So in general, what, what we see is that typically what you see with, with traditional businesses is that they have sales department, they have marketing department, and they have, you can say, customer success department or something like that. And what we see today is that this role, the sales role, the marketing role, and the customer success role is starting to, you can say, emerge. And what we see then is that people are becoming more kind of like head of commercial, head of growth, head of revenue, maybe. And and what we also see is that you can say from the traditional funnel marketing perspectives that we used to have, where you have an awareness, acquisition, activation, retention, revenue, and referral, is that marketing kind of was hitting the awareness part, the acquisition part. Then we probably had sales, you can say hitting the activation part, uh, the revenue part. And then you had the customer success, which was hitting the revenue and the and the customer success part. But today what we see is that you can say growth marketers are focusing on on all of them as a holistic, you can say, approach to how to grow the business. And one of the things that we see is that if you can build loops around your business, and this can apply to any type of business. And what I mean with, with a loop, with a growth loop is really that you have an, an input of some sort. I'll give you an example afterwards. You then have a series of actions and then you have an output and the output is directly inputted into the input such that it can spin basically like a loop. One, one very typical example is something like LinkedIn. So when you sign up for LinkedIn for the first time, you're prompted to invite uh, your network to LinkedIn. Your network will receive an email. Some of the people who receive this email will also click on it, on the invite and go to the landing page. And they will also end up signing up for LinkedIn. And of course, when they sign up for LinkedIn, they will also get prompted to invite their network to LinkedIn. And this is, you can say, a typical viral loop. And this is something that can apply to many SaaS companies and social businesses as well. But you can think about this loop mindset or methodology in any type of business really. And you can also think about it from a retention side. Let me give you some, some example of a, of a traditional content loop, for example, with podcasting as we are doing it right now. So one thing, of course, is that what you hope is that, let's say you have some listeners, they are listening to your podcast. And what you want to do, of course, is that you want to acquire them. But at some point, you want to you monetize them at some point. So what do you do, of course, is that you you distribute content, you distribute episodes on your podcast with people like me. And one thing is that you hope that I would possibly share your podcast on my channel. And you can say what you want to do is that you want to feed this content loop, which as much content as possible, because for the, the more content you put out, the more revenue you hopefully generate as well. So let's so let's say you you post an episode one person listens to the episode and end up buying something from you. You post another episode and then you basically make it spin. So for, for all the revenue that you generate, you'll use that to create more content or you will use that to, to hire more people to, to work in your sales funnels. And that is basically how it works, if it makes sense. Right. Absolutely makes sense. Yeah, a lot of times people talk about sales funnels, but the sales funnel is kind of an older strategy at this point. And, and, and a lot of people call like that looping strategy. They call it like the sales flywheel where the wheel is spinning and you just want to kind of keep getting more people in to make the wheel spin faster as you go. 
you know, kind of that snowball down the mountain effect where the snowball gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger rather than just, you know. And I think it kind of comes back to that idea that if businesses focus specifically on the customer acquisition for one single transaction and then move on to trying to get the next customer, they're missing out on all the other stuff that builds the business. And they will typically be stuck in this kind of single transaction mode, spinning their wheels forever because they're never going to get ahead because they're always spending and they're always spending time and money to try and acquire the next customer. And they don't have anything to, to help kind of build that business for them. So let me ask you this. Is there anything else that I have not asked you yet that you think could help out our listeners? Wow, that, that is a lot of things. But I guess one question that we could talk about is this retention stuff, because I honestly believe that this is one of the foundational things to grow. Because if you, let's say you acquire one user on a daily basis, but if you don't retain one user on a daily basis, then then you're basically not growing at all because for every customer you get, you will lose one, of course. So retention is basically, you can say this foundation that we want to build on top of. So we really want, you can say our retention curve to flatten at one point, because then we can basically try to, you can say, grow on top of that. And this is also one of the reasons that many people say that you should focus on your first hundred customers or your first thousand customers or what it is to really make sure that they love the product. One thing, of course, is that they keep getting back and using the product. The other thing, of course, is that we also deepening the engagement with these users. Just one tip here, Matt, is that how we like to think about it is that there's one what we call an adoption phase, a habit phase and an investment phase. And what we want our users to do is to kind of take a natural path down this, we call it a ladder of engagement, basically. So imagine the LinkedIn example again. You don't want your users when they first sign up, you don't want them to post content. That is not the first thing that you would like users to do because it's a hard ask if you ask your users, okay, so you sign up for LinkedIn. Now I want you to create a post on LinkedIn. That is the first thing that I want you to do. That is not the first thing that LinkedIn wants you to do, of course. They want you to... First, fill in your resume, add your education, your companies, etc. Because when you have inputted that, they can refer or they can show you people who you might know. People from the company that you have inputted. So if you work at Dropbox, they will show you people from Dropbox. If you attended, I don't know, Howard, then they would recommend alumni from Howard as well that you would possibly know. And then what they want to do next is that they want you to build this network. So they basically use, you can say, the adoption phase to kind of get people as fast as possible through to the habit phase, which is is building network and then posting content. So they want you to post content when you have seen the benefits of building a network. And of course, the benefits of building a network on LinkedIn is that now you know whenever someone in your network changed jobs, what's going on in their life, what matters to them right now, and kind of, uh, you can say, all of this network approach. And then at a later step, they want you to provide content yourself to your network. And then, of course, later they want you to use the enterprise products, sales uh, navigator, recruitment products, do publishing, go live, etc. That's absolutely true. And uh, that's a that's a really good example. And, you know, what's one thing that's interesting about LinkedIn, and this is not necessarily related to how they market the product, but I've, I've been telling people for, I don't even know, like almost two years now, as long as the podcast has been on, I'm like, go use LinkedIn because it's just <laughs> exploding right now. Right. And it still is. I'm surprised at how much growth it still has. I mean, 
thought it was going to kind of peter out a little bit after the first, you know, six months or so that Microsoft took it over, but they've done a really good job with it. So when you get a follower on like Facebook, Instagram, pretty much any other social platform, right, then they follow you. You have to follow them back if you want to see their stuff. And then only a percentage of the people that you're following see your stuff. But on LinkedIn, when you make a connection, it's a two way street. You don't have to follow them and have them follow you. There's only one connection. So when you make the connection, they immediately start seeing the things that you post. Exactly. As long as they're on during the lifetime of your post. But that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so LinkedIn is a great way to get on on board and, and make those network connections. And then you can use that for your network. Like you said, when somebody changes jobs, you know, maybe you can poach, poach some employees <laughs> if they're switching jobs, right? Or... <laughs> You know, there's there's all kinds of things you can do when you find out about stuff on LinkedIn from people. It's a great platform right now. So one other question that we kind of breezed over quickly was if somebody's building a SaaS product or, you know, kind of a digital startup, do you like the idea of building out of the gate and saying, look, we're going to build this so that we can sell it or get an exit or so we can IPO this business or should they be like, we want to build a profitable business and then we're going to worry about exit strategies after? <laughs> of course, this is a very, you could say, subjective question. Yeah, and, and of course, it picks the answer. If you are in your early 20s like I am, or maybe even in your early, early 30s, I believe kind of like having an exit strategy in mind from the start is a good thing because you can... You will get a lot of experience quickly when you have this, this kind of mindset because you want to, you want to, you can say grow it at all costs. And that is a very, very steep learning curve. And you possibly also have, and the reason why I say twenties and thirties is that you possibly don't have commitments in regards to a family, house, kids, et cetera, at that point. And you can put in the amount of hours that I believe and a, a business that, that is going through. You can say all the different stages of uh, of investment and basically trying to sell it at some point. The the amount of hours that it sometimes require, or at least the amount of workload that you take with you back home. I believe if if you wanna if you wanna have a business for for a longer period and you wanna bootstrap it and you maybe wanna you can say pay out dividends at some point. I believe that's a great way to go as well. But I I definitely believe that you will learn faster if you you can say pursue the the other path. Not that it is a path that's better for other people. Learn growth strategies faster if you're trying to grow it exponentially for an exit versus trying to grow it for revenue over time. I don't think that, you know, I know. I mean, yeah, there is some obviously there's more people in their 20s who don't have a family than there are in their 40s. But I don't think it's it's an age kind of related thing, of course. But, you know, we don't want anybody fly, flying the ageist banner at us later. <laughs> no, no. Oh, and, you know, it's interesting. So you have a hat on. People can't see it because we don't have the video right well, on the podcast. But it says made in the 90s. And I graduated high school in 1990. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, obviously you, you've done, I mean, a lot of work in your life already on this. You're very knowledgeable on the topic. And I don't think that a lot of people discount what people say because of their age. Right. They go, oh, well, this is a 20 something year old kid. He doesn't know anything. Right. And I'm like, well, that's completely wrong. I mean, how many people built these massive businesses, 
right? And and sometimes even in like their teenage years, right? Like there's Mark Birdie's a good example as a marketing genius. He's probably made over seven figures at this point. And I think he's 19 or something, you know, so age is just not a factor. And the other thing is maybe you worked in a traditional business like a brick and mortar until you were 60 and now you want to do a digital startup. There's no reason why you can't, right? The, the, the idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks is complete BS. You know, I'm a firm believer in, you know, lifelong learning. And I didn't start my family till I was in my 40s, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I ran a startup at the same time. So, yeah. you know, I think if you want to build a business, you can build a business. But I think, yeah, some of the stuff that, that you talked about today, especially about the idea of loops to get like client retention loops and client acquisition loops, as well as product market fit and getting an advisory board. And all of these things are are fantastic things that a lot of businesses could be doing right now that I don't believe that they've ever really thought about. So that's fantastic information. If somebody wants to reach out to you because they want some help with their business or their startup, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Please add me on LinkedIn. It's just Nikki Fries. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have, or maybe Matt, if you post a link somewhere, I'll also be very happy to answer questions and comments on Matt's post as well. I also have a podcast called Out of Growth, where I interview growth professionals, just like Matt is doing right now. We kind of go more in depth with growth models, acquisition loops. And of course, I would be happy to see you there as well. Perfect. And uh, yeah, we'll put those in the show notes. And that's Nikki Fries is N-I-C-K-I-F-R-I-I-S. And you can find him on LinkedIn and connect with him later. And I sent you a LinkedIn request actually just before we started. So we'll get connected and we'll post the podcast and people could comment on it. And if you have questions, feel free to post them on LinkedIn and we'll uh, see you guys on LinkedIn. And Nikki, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Matt. It's been an honor. Yeah, thanks. It's, and I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge. I think people are, are going to get a lot of help out of this one. I'm very happy to. And thank you to the crowd who is listening in. Thank you. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Now stay tuned for a preview of our next episode of Digital Marketing Masters. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.